Lord Jesus, we come before you. We believe in you, Holy Spirit. And we pray and ask that in new and fresh ways, you will reveal yourself to each ear that is listening. And that you would open up ears, open up eyes. And Lord, that you would increase our belief and that you would do things in this day, in this time, so that all would believe that you are the Lord of heaven and earth. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One day, my Uncle Mike, he was starting to have trouble breathing. And unfortunately for, for my uncle, he was diagnosed with mesolithemioma, uh, which is a cancer of the lining of the lungs. He had, ended up having a major surgery at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and he could breathe again. And uh, I visited him at the hospital a week or so after the surgery. He was doing really well. I remember having just a wonderful conversation with him in, in his room. Uh, he was getting better. He was walking around. He was amazed. Then uh, he was still in the hospital, and several days later, my mother called me on a Friday morning at 10 a.m., and she said, Michael, your uncle, he's afraid. He's afraid. He's in the ICU right now, and they're talking about sedating him because things are spiraling out of control. Michael, my mother said, would you please go now? Would you go and, and talk to your uncle? Talk to him about spiritual things because we know he doesn't believe in Jesus. I said, well, yeah, okay, of course. Of course, I've talked to my uncle before. Many others had as well. I was in the middle of a writing project that Friday morning, and some of the best writing happens in the morning, and so to get up and to leave, I just walk, live about an eight-minute walk from Brigham and Women's Hospital, but to stop my work and to leave right then felt, well, I was going to let a, go, a whole day go of getting my work done. So I thought to myself, well, I'll, I'll go at the end of the day after I can get some things done, and I'll, I'll check in on him and, and talk to him. So I continued to write. It was about 10 a.m. About 15 minutes later, my heart was just sinking. I had this nagging feeling that I had to go. I had to go now. I kind of grunted, gave up my work for the morning, I grabbed my Bible, and I began to walk over to Brigham and Women's, wondering, what on earth am I going to say to my Uncle Mike? And I think the Holy Spirit at least in my experience, this often puts us in these kind of uncomfortable positions. But if you learn to live with the Spirit and to walk with the Spirit, you learn to listen and to obey. Today is the day we celebrate the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost, 50 days after our Lord rose from the grave. He sent the Holy Spirit, as we read in Acts chapter 2. He he breathed, as it says in John chapter 20, he breathed on his disciples and he poured out his Holy Spirit. Earlier on in the Gospel of John, John uh, in John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus says, regarding the Spirit, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, 
but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And even so, the, the Holy Spirit blows and breathes wherever he wishes, for he is Lord, and he can go wherever he wishes. Well, where does the Holy Spirit wish to breathe today? Where does he desire to go? Where does he desire to breathe? And there's so much that we could say on this topic, but I want to simplify things down to two simple points for you to reflect on this morning as we think about John chapter 16 in this text. Where does the Holy Spirit wish to breathe? Well, first, the Holy Spirit wishes to breathe on you by coming alongside you and in you. Uh, the counselor, or uh, the NIV uh, calls him the, the, uh, the advocate or the counselor, Jesus says, has come to you, and he says, I will send him to you. And it's advantageous that I go in order that you might receive the Holy Spirit. This word counselor, the NIV, the 1984 NIV translates it counselor, the later NIV translates it advocate, and there are many other words that translate this particular Greek word paraclete. It means literally, he who is called alongside. And the word paraclete is used four times in the Gospel of John, chapter 14 through 16, in this, uh, this farewell discourse that Jesus is giving to his disciples on the, the night before that he is to die. And he talks about the paraclete, this comforter, or there's other English translations, as some, uh, he's called the advocate, which is a, this legal context. Uh, some translate it as counselor, which is more of a therapeutic context. Others translate it, like the ESV, as helper, which more is like an assistant. Uh, and still others translate paraclete as friend, which means more like a companion. Why so many different English translations? Well, the, it's most likely because paraclete cannot be encompassed by any one of these particular words. There's no human role that completely captures the role of the Holy Spirit. And so we can either choose a particular word to translate paraclete, but then we end up limiting the, the true and fuller meaning of what the Holy Spirit is and what he does. And so even so, some just decide to translate it and transliterate it as paraclete. And then let's talk about exactly all of these things that uh, it means in regards to who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. And I think that is perhaps my, at least my preferred way, that we use the word paraclete and then talk about the various dimensions of what this word means in regards to the Holy Spirit. Again, it literally means he who is called alongside. That's what the literal meaning of paraclete is. It's he who is called alongside. And we can learn things even from uh, this meaning of uh, the whole, in reference to the Holy Spirit, he will come to you. It's one that Jesus sends, and he who is called, it's not the Holy Spirit who is calling, someone else is calling the Holy Spirit and sending the Holy Spirit. And as we read in John chapters 14 through 16, it is 
the Father who sends the Spirit, it's the Father who calls the Spirit, and it is as well Jesus who calls the Spirit and sends the Spirit to us. And what does it mean that he comes to us? Well, in chapter 14, verse 17, it, all in this evening discourse that Jesus gives to his disciples, referring to the paraclete, in verse 17 of chapter 14, Jesus says, for he lives with you and he will be in you. And that's the amazing intimacy that Jesus promises those who will receive the Holy Spirit. It's not like any other religion. It's not simply believing certain ideas. It's not just simply living a moral kind of life. It's about a relationship. It's about an intimate relationship where the Spirit of God comes and joins himself to your soul, living within you. The Apostle Paul says, in regards to this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with the price. And so when one believes in Jesus Christ, one receives the one who has been called and sent to come alongside and to come in. It's this amazing, intimate relationship that one can enjoy with Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, we can talk about many different ways the New Testament describes the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives. He, he bears spiritual fruit. And so it's the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, in which we learn that the Holy Spirit within our very lives bears out our character so that we become more like Jesus. This is part of the operation of the Spirit, this indwelling Spirit. Not only so, but not only does he bear fruit in our lives, but he gives gifts. We read about that in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, uh, the various passages on the giving of spiritual gifts, which are for the empowerment of ministry, in which we can serve others in proclaiming the gospel not in our own strength or power, but through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, empowering us to do ministry. So the Spirit in his indwelling, he bears fruit in us, he gives, he, he gives gifts to us for ministry, but he also, and I think this is particularly the focus in John chapter 14 through 16, particularly here in verse chapter 16, it's the Spirit, this indwelling Spirit, who gives us guidance it says in verse 13, he will guide you into all truth. It's this amazing speaking of the Holy Spirit in which he ministers to our spirits, showing us the way. I was speaking with one teen who is following Jesus, and I was talking to him about how the Holy Spirit speaks to us. And then all of a sudden, we were having this conversation about how the Holy Spirit speaks. And then all of a sudden, he said, oh, that's what that voice has been. That voice that I don't listen to 90% of the time. And I said, well, what, what is it that the voice is saying to you? What, what have you been hearing? Well, most of the time, it's, it, it's, it's do your homework. And I said, huh, hmm, that, 
That sounds like the Holy Spirit, yeah. But of course it raises questions in which we listen for the Holy Spirit and he seeks to guide us, but it raises questions on how do we know it's the Holy Spirit's voice and not our own voice or the voice of the world or the voice of, of the devil. And let me just propose very quickly five tests on whether the Holy Spirit is speaking to you versus the world or your own flesh or the devil. The first test is this. I'll just rapidly try to go through these, but the most important one is it's the test, or we'll call it the foundation test. It's the foundation test in that the Holy Spirit communicates primarily through Scripture. And he, when he communicates through Scripture, he never will contradict it. It says in 2 Peter, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit who actually produces our Bible, who has produced the Scriptures. And it is through the Scriptures that he primarily speaks to us. And he will never speak in contradiction to it, lest he contradict himself. And so we can turn to the scriptures and regularly read the scriptures and learn from them. And the Holy Spirit uses that to impress himself and his guidance upon us. But it's not only the scriptures uh, that we are, that the Spirit chooses to communicate. In fact, scripture even tells us that the Spirit will communicate in other ways. And we read in Acts chapter 2 that he can communicate through dreams and, and visions, sometimes through prophetic words sometimes through signs of providence. And these subjective ways in which the Holy Spirit communicates here especially is where we must, we must scrutinize. As it says, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast what is good. So it's easy in which one can claim the words of the Holy Spirit telling me to do this or telling you to go do that, and we know that that can be very manipulative and it can, uh, it can be misguided. Nevertheless, uh, it's also a mistake to say, well, the Holy Spirit never will do that. That's throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And so we need other tests beyond the foundation test of Scripture, which any time the Spirit is speaking and it supposedly and it ends up contradicting Scripture, you know it's not the Holy Spirit speaking. The other tests are, let's call it the hedonist test in which when the Holy Spirit is guiding, does it end up feeding your fleshy desires or does it require sacrifice, real sacrifice? There's the pride test. Does what the Holy Spirit say or in his guidance, does it exalt the name of Jesus or does it end up exalting yourself? There's the guilt test, knowing that a lot of people can do things good things out of guilt. And we can ask ourselves, am I being motivated by guilt or is what I'm hearing really motivated out of love? The Apostle Paul says, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So there's the foundation test, the hedonist test, the pride test, the guilt test, and the final one is the community test. What do trusted Christians, what does the trusted Christian community, what do they say as they hear what, they, what you have said the Holy Spirit says? 
Does the community around you, as they weigh these things with you, do they confirm or do they express warning? And none of these, of course, are perfect tests. They all, they all have failures. We all make mistakes. But all of them together, weighed in the balance, help us in reliably hearing and following what the Holy Spirit says. And so when we ask the question, what, where does the Holy Spirit want to breathe? He wants to breathe on you. He wants to indwell you in an intimate, personal relationship, giving you the fruits of his spirit, the gifts of his spirit, and his guidance. And it, the onus is on us to listen, to listen and to obey and to follow him, realizing he wants to have this intimate, close relationship, not in which you are just feel, merely following doctrines or living a good life, but in a close relationship with the living God who gifts you his Holy Spirit. It's an amazing, wonderful doctrine to breathe and to live into. So where does the Holy Spirit wish to breathe? First, the Holy Spirit wishes to breathe by coming alongside you and in you, the paraclete. But then second, the Holy Spirit wishes to breathe on the world. He wishes to breathe on the world. And we can read this in, in verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and in judgment. You see, the Holy Spirit goes before us, and this is why we can be disciples who have courage and confidence about speaking to others about Jesus, because the Holy Spirit has promised to go well on before us, doing the work, the work of conviction. And this is not the work of conviction to condemn. It's the work of conviction to woo into his own heart. Because Jesus, the, the Spirit of God, desires relationship with us. And he desires to remove the obstacles that are preventing that relationship. And so he does the work of conviction. And as we see here in verses 8 through 11, the text specifically lays out three ways in which the Holy Spirit brings conviction to the world. First, we can see it in verse 9. The Holy Spirit brings conviction about sin. And then it, there's a further clarification that Jesus gives, because people do not believe in me. So the Spirit brings conviction about sin because of unbelief. And notice, it's not conviction about sins. All the little things that you do wrong or things that you're not doing that you should. No. It's not that kind of conviction that you're wrong, you're bad, or you could do better than that. It's conviction about unbelief because people do not believe in me. So the central issue, the central issue around sin is not your actions. It's this state of being in unbelief in Jesus Christ. In fact, Augustine once wrote, he said, of this only one sin, then the Holy Spirit would have the world to be convinced that they believe not on him. Because, he goes on to say, by, because by believing on Jesus, all the other sins become loosed. And so he goes 
calling, moving, challenging the unbelief in following Jesus. But not only so, also in verse 10, we see a second aspect of his conviction. The Spirit brings conviction about righteousness. And then Jesus brings this clarifying phrase, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. It's conviction about righteousness. Now this righteousness is likely Jesus' reference to his own righteous life of himself because he's qualified to go into the presence of the Father. And that's the kind of righteousness that is necessary to be in his presence. Of course, our righteousness is it's fickle. It's flawed from ourselves as individuals to our collective nature as a society. There's plenty of good attributes in every single person and across our culture, many things that we could extol as good, as righteous. Nevertheless, we are deeply marred with a self-love. And we have, as we have even been made more aware of this week, of intractable injustices that are based in self-love. So our righteousness, the Spirit wants to say, pales in comparison to the deep, deep love of Jesus, which produces a righteous, beautiful, perfect kind of life. All of which none of us have achieved. The Holy Spirit lifts up the righteousness of Christ, not to condemn you, not to tell you to be better, but in order that the world might be saved through Christ in his righteousness. So he convicts around the sin of unbelief of Jesus, and he convicts about what it really means to be righteous. But then there's this third conviction in in verse 11 of chapter 16. The Spirit brings conviction that the prince of this world is condemned. It's judgment. And the judgment is the prince of this world is judged found wanting and condemned. And this is the the biblical narrative. This is why we gather together on this day in the church calendar to, to celebrate the Holy Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit, making this the age of the Spirit. The risen Lord has defeated Satan. He's thrown him out of heaven. It's this wonderful reality. And yet... It's hard to believe, especially in light of all that we've been witnessing over the last several months. Evil has been rampant. Suffering has been palpable. Satan hardly seems condemned, does he? We have the pandemic in which every one of us have been touched. There's been extraordinary loss more than words can capture. Over 103,000 Americans have died over these last few months from the pandemic, and we don't know how many more. It's hard to believe that Satan is judged not only because of the pandemic, but all the economic harm and suffering that we're seeing. 
unemployment is almost at 15 percent. It's skyrocketed over the last few months, 40 million Americans filing for unemployment insurance. Thank God we have that. 15 percent, the highest unemployment rate in the United States since the 1930s. And it's the minorities who are experiencing disproportional negative effects from the pandemic. They're actually the ones who are experiencing the most poor health outcomes. And they're also the ones who are bearing the brunt of the unemployment. Minorities being more likely to have lost their jobs in comparison to whites. It's hard. This has not been a good time. And if that's not enough, racial tensions now are in the mix. Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Freddie Gray, Tamer Rice. And then in February, Ahmaud Arbery, murdered by vigilantes in Georgia. And then last Monday, George Floyd. With this atrocious, terrible act that we watch again on video. You know, you do the math, this is a powder keg. None of us can see where all of this is going. It's a grim situation, and it could get worse. People are desperate. People are hungry, wondering how they're going to pay for their rent. We're wondering whether there's going to be another wave of the virus. It's an election year, which just amplifies everything that's going on. Many youths, besides those who have already lost their jobs, a lot of Young men and women don't have summer jobs this summer. City programs are closed. What do you think is going to happen with all, with all of that going on over the next several months? Controversial Twitter comments. You know, it goes on and on and on. We are in a powder keg, and we have to wonder, where is the Holy Spirit? The evil one is on the move, inflicting suffering, causing havoc sustaining and maintaining systemic injustice. And yet, Jesus says in verse 11 that Satan is condemned. This doesn't mean that he's powerless, but it does mean his defeat is certain. And it's in his certain defeat, in this age of the Spirit, where he now, even now, is groaning. He's groaning to pull good out of this evil. I believe the Spirit is groaning to bring justice, groaning to bring repentance, groaning to bring an awakening. That's the only way I can come to understand all that's been happening. I believe the evil one is part of the pandemic, wanting it and willing it and helping it move along. But the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can knows the will of that evil one, and he can use it to bring out good. And we are seeing good. The pandemic has shown most everyone who's willing to spend a little bit of time thinking that we're not in control. I was, in fact, never in control. I just thought that I was in control. I'm, in fact, very vulnerable. I'm weak. All of my self-trust has been simply a spiritual delusion. 
And then there's all the trust in our cultural institutions. The Holy Spirit is confronting that trust, which ends up often operating like an idolatry. We see the weakness of science, of medicine, of human government, of our constitution, of the university, of technology, of our economic system. None of it is able to save us. And yet, so often we are been, we've been putting our trust in, which is really just in a, delu- a delusion. And the pandemic has been having this effect, making many of us think and reflect and realize that perhaps my faith has been in all the wrong things, in these dust and ashes. Even the churches have been forced, maybe even against what they've wanted to do, to reconsider their ways. How do we do mission? How do we reach the world? And this has been good reflection for all of us. And so Satan pulls out his very next scheme. I know what I'll do. I'll inflame their unaddressed, their unrepented of racial injustice. That works. That's worked before. It will work again. This festering wound that Satan knows just to put his finger in, causing a ripple effect across our society. Stir anger, divide the people by race and by color. Create more crowds who aren't wearing masks and spread the virus. Send out tear gas. Create havoc. I don't want revival in the church. I will not allow an awakening across America. He can see what's happening. He can see the potential for good coming out. And so he's going to oppose it. Suffocate them, he says. George Floyd begged. I can't breathe, he said. And that's truly Satan's intention. To make us all not breathe. Make them not breathe with the coronavirus. You can see what it actually does to your lungs. Make it hard to breathe wearing these, the indignity of having to wear these masks in order to protect one another. Make them not breathe. We'll start spreading tear gas with all these riots, which obviously violent protests lead to nothing. It will not lead to good. It's not the way forward. Make them not breathe, he thinks. Put the knee on their neck and suffocate them. Let them suffer, for they deserve it. I can't breathe, he says. Oh, but you can still talk, is the reply. As bleak as it all seems, my heart tells me something is happening. The Holy Spirit is at work. He wants to do something. And I wonder whether we are on the cusp of seeing events that we've never seen before, that we've heard of in previous generations. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be just like the Holy Spirit who blows wherever he wishes and can do whatever he wants when he wants The Lord asked the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 37, Son of man, can these bones live? He asks. Ezekiel says, I don't know. Oh Lord God, you know. 
Then in verse 11 of chapter 37 of Ezekiel, the bones say, our bones are dried up, our hope is gone, we are cut off. They have no hope. But listen to what the sovereign Lord says. Come, he says, breathe from the four winds. Come, breath, from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. And so Ezekiel obeyed. He prophesied as commanded. And breath entered them and they came to life and stood up on their feet. A vast army. You see, Satan aims to suffocate. But it's the spirit of Pentecost. It's the Holy Spirit who blows. Who blows and desires revival in the church and awakening across our land. And so the Holy Spirit is at work. He's gone on before us. He's been already at work, even in the midst of all this evil and suffering. And we are called, as Paul says in Galatians 5, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us realize what He is trying to do. And let us align our hearts with Him. And it all begins with prayer. We must pray. When will you, church, rise and pray? That is what he's waiting for, for us to groan with him and to stand with this for no longer. And we can see what he desires and see it in our very own mist. The Holy Spirit wishes to breathe on all of us, on you, by coming alongside and in. And the Holy Spirit wishes to breathe on the world, bringing conviction and the abundance of his life. So may it be. It was prayer that was surrounding my Uncle Mike. My mother for 40 years praying for her younger brother. My sister rallied her entire church praying for my uncle, for his recovery, but especially that he would come into a relationship with the living God. I walked down the back road, went up the tower of Brigham, got to my uncle's, uh, into the ICU, the surgical ICU where he was. The doctors were all there. My, one of my cousins, his daughter, my cousin was there. And all I could do was just look at my uncle, all the things coming out of him. He was afraid. Then the medical team, they, they heard that I was a pastor, and so they said, oh, we'll give you a few minutes, and they, they actually left and, and, and gave us a few minutes behind the curtain. And I was just staring at my uncle. He was my godfather. I've, of course, I've known him all my life. And all of a sudden, I began to sob and just cry really hard. <laughs> my, my, my uncle said, I'm not dying yet. Later on, I realized that those tears that I had been shedding, they weren't me. They were the Holy Spirit crying over my uncle, desiring him to come into relationship. I read a scripture, and Uncle Mike, and the whisper, because he could barely talk, he said, do you, have a few words for me. 
Do you have a few words for me to say? The only thing that popped into my mind were an, an amalgam of two scriptures. There were this, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And so Uncle Mike, he began to say these words. He said, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me. And then he stopped. And I waited, and I kind of, I wasn't even looking at his face as he was doing this, and then I kind of looked at him. And I said, a sinner. He paused a few more seconds and closed his eyes, and then he whispered, a sinner. A little later on, as I was rejoicing and amazed, and I was saying goodbye, my uncle, his very last words to me was, Michael, I feel peace. My cousin, a few days later, he told me at my uncle's funeral. Uh, I had left, and my, my other cousin had come in, and he said, my dad, he said to me that you were here, and he, feels a lot of, he felt a lot of peace. And my cousin is not a Christian, but he witnessed what had happened. As I left, I was rejoicing, wondering, wow, what is going to happen to Uncle Mike now? This is amazing. And at 1 o'clock that afternoon, he was medically sedated in the ICU. And he was never to awake. I wondered to myself, what if all those people hadn't prayed? I wondered to myself, what if I had stayed at my desk and hadn't gone? And even so, I want to encourage you to listen to the Holy Spirit who is wooing you into his heart. And if you don't know him, I, I, the simple words you can say is, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And say them from the heart and your life will be utterly changed. And if you are following him, listen to him. For he goes on before us doing a work, and he's doing that now. We must join him. Lord Jesus, we believe in you. We cry out to you to do a mighty work in our midst. Lord, do it in our life. Do it in the life of someone who's listening right now who has not given their life to you. Do it in the entire church to listen and to obey. To have a radical new kind of faith. To follow you wherever it goes, no matter how uncomfortable. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ would be glorified. That there would be an awakening. That we would see the condemnation of the devil that you have declared. And that we would see this land changed into love. For we need you, Lord. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.